More than a third of Americans say they spent more out of pocket on medical costs than they could afford in the last month. Much of that expense is in prescription drugs, and pharmacy benefit managers, or PBMs, play a key role in this process. In this episode of our award-winning podcast, we'll continue our discussion about PBMs. Welcome to Modern Practice. I'm your host, Dr. Tom Villanueva, Senior Principal of Operations and Quality at Vizian and Practicing Internist. And joining me again is Dr. Priyash Patel, Vice President and General Manager of Aluma. Priyash, welcome back. Thanks, Tom. So briefly, let's recap our discussion from our last episode. I mean, what are the issues that most are important regarding PBS? I, I think it's important to know what they function well at. And also, let's recognize from last time, there's been some controversy. Yeah, I think PPMs have a very important role in the marketplace. We should acknowledge the fact that a lot of good has come from pharmacy benefit management type companies in the marketplace. There is value in having scale and managing costs down to help the patients and consumers at the end of the day spend less money on drugs, but greater value for them. The problem in this industry is that left unchecked over the last 30 years, there have been a lot of players that have moved into the pharmacy benefits management industry. So it's not just the PBMs that we have to account for. We have to account for consultants who play in this industry as objective intermediaries helping plan sponsors shop for the right PBM. They're unchecked as well. So they have a incentive to earn income from PBMs. And then the question that obviously comes from that is how objective are they when they select a PBM for a plan sponsor? That has been an interesting dynamic that has been brought to attention in the marketplace as well. Furthermore, this expansion of PBMs now owning delivery systems where fulfillment of prescriptions take place and delivery to patients, the horizontal integration and vertical integration with insurers certainly begs the question that are we looking at a national oligopoly that's now turning into a monopoly? And that's a very big weighted question that's been weighed at different levels in the political landscape, in the business landscape, as well as from a consumer perspective, the consumer landscape as well. What do we do differently in Aluma? We have done an amazing job at Aluma to really pare down the business model towards simplicity. So what we have called out and declared is we make zero revenue from prescriptions. We just cut ourselves from prescriptions altogether. Why would we, as a clinically provider-led organization, promote polypharmacy? That makes no sense. So we have created a revenue system that's based on per member per month fixed fee for the services that we render. What we've also done uniquely is because of our clinical partnerships, we've developed clinical programs like diabetes programs, asthma programs, that other PBMs in the marketplace will charge for those services on a per-click basis or a per member per month basis as a value-add service. We said, why would we do that? We are a provider-led organization. We would do that normally on a day-to-day basis. Why would we not collaborate with our health system clinicians and help promote the diabetes programs? It doesn't matter whether you're in the Pacific Northwest or in Florida. If you have diabetes, you have diabetes. There are national guidelines that we follow 
to manage diabetes. So it, these programs should never be value-add extra charge for plan sponsors because that's not how we're set up. So we bundle all of our clinical services reasonably offered within our management fee model. You wouldn't see that in other places. We're holding ourselves true to transparency. We're fully auditable. So when we talk to our clients and say, look, if you want to audit us financially, you're welcome to do so. You can look at our rebates that we're capturing, for example, all the way down to the NDC level, which is primarily at the drug level, is what that means. So I can tell my client at drug A level, this is the rebate you're receiving, not just a aggregate number that you receive at the end of the day. So that really helps not only the HR colleagues at the health plan, but also clinicians now have line of sight to say, well, why are we prescribing this very expensive drug just because of a rebate when we could have offered a much lower cost forgo the rebate, but it was generically available and it would have cost the patient one-tenth the cost. So those are the types of discussions and opportunities that our clinical team, hand-in-hand with our self-insured health system clients, are beginning to work together and creating case studies. You mentioned rebates. So how do rebates factor in the process of pharmacy benefit management programs? Unfortunately, rebates are after a purchase. So they're never instituted at the point of sale. So you as a patient, when you're at a pharmacy, you're not getting the benefit of that discount or rebate that your drug is attributed to. Wow. Because the manufacturer will pay the PBM a rebate at a certain time schedule after the claim has been processed, maybe a quarter later, maybe two quarters later. The PBM has the tendency to hold on to do that cash as well because it's left unchecked. So imagine putting that entire rebate bundle in a bank account or investment account and earning interest on that and paying your consumer or your client at a lag in time. So most rebates that we receive are almost three quarters later than when the rebate was received in the PBM. So this lag has created a disconnect for health plans to figure out how to take that value and incorporate that back to the consumer. Most of the time, the health plans will just receive those rebates, put it in their journal fund as a credit, and move on. So describe best practice in the field then. You know, the best practice in the field, which is what Aluma is trying to aspire to, is really transparency and simplicity. At the end of the day, we are talking about a provider-led solution. When we're talking about lives, we're talking about people. And people have, unfortunately, a lot of chronic illnesses that we need to address. When we look at post-COVID, what has happened to our country, and the areas of focus around obesity, diabetes, depression, prevention screening that has been delayed for a significant amount of time, where we're now seeing a lot of patients through the employer lens who are being diagnosed with new cancer. And unfortunately, at a later stage in the cancer process than what they would have detected had they gone in a lot sooner. So when we're thinking about that, and we're thinking about what can we do different in the marketplace, we are approaching our solution from a clinical 
differentiated value point of view as opposed to a financial value system. And I think if we get that right, then overall costs would go down for the consumers, for the lives that we're serving, but also the health plans that are shouldering the expense, which is our health system members that we serve across the country. So being a self-insured employer, you're carrying that financial risk for all the employees and dependents that you're serving. And what can we do better by integrating pharmacy, HR, finance at the health system, bring all of them together to the table, as well as the clinicians, and make educated decisions and informed decisions around what drugs should be on the formulary, how they should be prescribed, and what should be continued and what should be stopped. And that really comes from creating a transparent model. And that's what we're aspiring to do. Preesh, I was actually relating to, in the previous episode, my frustrations as a practicing clinician, as a practicing physician, that sometimes getting the med that I think is necessary for my patient is pretty much, it's an uphill battle. So I know what my reality is at that time, but can you kind of lead us in on what the reality is of how decisions are made in these kind of models? Yeah. Unfortunately, when we think about pharmacy benefits management companies at large in the industry, they're highly disconnected from folks like yourself, practicing physicians in the community. So you feel like you are on the sideline trying to call an audible and a play and no one's hearing you on the field. Correct. And what happens historically is that pharmacy benefits management companies will retain a group of physicians, clinicians to help them with their formulary management process. However, they're not tied to daily practice with physicians in the community. So macro level decisions are made around drug therapy, how they're placed on the formulary, whether they're a tier one or a tier two, et cetera. So if you're a practicing physician and you say, look, hey, this is a drug that I want to prescribe for my patient because we've tried everything else. It hasn't really worked. Oh, this is a unique case where I want to circumvent the process and get straight to the therapy that I believe is going to be assertive enough to take care of the problem for this patient. What we currently have is a process called an appeals process. Unfortunately, that process is not well designed and efficient for the practicing physician, which is why you have such headaches in the community. You have to make a couple of calls. You have to wait for somebody to call you back. When they do call you back, you have to justify your case study. Then they take that case study back in-house. They evaluate it with their in-house physician staff. And then somebody will call you a few days later and say, yes, this is a drug that you will be able to prescribe or hey, let me tell you why you were not going to be able to prescribe these drugs. And you really don't have the opportunity to have a healthy debate around the case study. What we want to do different in Aluma is bring those processes a lot closer and get the physician involved with the clinician on the Aluma side a lot quicker in a collaborative process, maybe in the one or two calls, resolve the issue and move forward. That's amazing. Can you go over the regional prescribing patterns? That is a phenomenon that exists across the country. We have patients who live in a variety of regions, right? So diet becomes a significant proponent in making decisions around which drug therapies would be better suited 
in certain regional practices or affordability, socioeconomic class, and really trying to deal with equity issues or lack of equity issue. There are many ways that physicians are dealt cards that they have zero control over. They see patients every day coming from all walks of life who may have diabetes as the primary clinical diagnosis, but it's not the clinical diagnosis that is the impairment. It's everything else around that patient, whether they can afford the medication, whether do they even have a home? There are a lot of patients who are in a homeless environment. How do you handle that situation? How are we addressing the fear that patients have around drug therapy? What if this drug creates more problems for me? Somebody told me, my family member told me this drug will create diarrhea or something like that. And they get fearful of actually trusting the process. So that's what we mean by regional variation in prescribing is not necessarily based on the clinical evidence. It's about the social determinants in those regions that influence how physicians prescribe those products or variation. And we have to have flexibility from an Aluma point of view. Our point of view is we need to have some level of flexibility and formulary to allow for those regional prescribing patterns to take place. We also serve a very large group of academic medical centers through Vizient. Many of the clinicians and physicians really are involved in clinical studies of those drug products that come to market and for better or worse, have a bias towards those products because they've been involved in the clinical trials. And so sometimes we will get pushback from the physicians, from these very prestigious academic medical centers that they know best, and therefore their prescribing patterns are different from the common physician groups in the community. So we have to figure out the right balance to ensure that we have flexibility, but at the same time, hold everybody involved, including our clinical leaders, physicians, around the financial value, which is what we're trying to address. You mentioned about patient bias. My biggest nightmare as a primary care physician is having a patient who has a neighbor that has a Merck manual. <laughs> Absolutely. And these days, it's not even that, right? I, I know. Mean, Google at your fingertips. is, is <laughs> yep. you know, WebMD trends to be the diagnosis platform as opposed to a well-trained physician right. who's gone through 13 years of experience training. So what do you advocate in changing the functions of PBMs for the better? I have to go back to transparency and simplicity. I think the PBM industry has been over-engineered over time unnecessarily, and it doesn't have to be this complex. I think the more we can work towards simplifying the model and creating transparency in how the business works so that people can understand it, I think it's going to create more trust in pharmacy benefits management companies, as well as bring all of the stakeholders together as opposed to opposing views. Are there any other issues that we didn't cover that you think are important? I think the only issue that I would bring up is the next 10 years, we're going to see a lot of regulatory influence in the industry. We've already started to see that where federal and state level legislations are being drawn up and approved to manage the pharmacy benefit management industry. Some are needed and others, 
I feel are maybe over-engineered now. The pendulum is shifting too much onto the other side towards regulations. And that may stifle innovation and growth and value when it comes to drug therapy management in the community. So it is a bit of a balance. It is a wait and see approach, but I would advocate for all of us to be actively involved with legislation and education and government advocacy as new drugs come into the marketplace. Priyash, thanks so much for joining us on these episodes and providing your perspective on PBMs. And to our listeners, you can contact Priyash and his email address in the resource section of our podcast page. And if you have any additional questions pertaining to modern practice or simply want to send us your comments, please contact me at our email at modernpracticepodcast@visientinc.com. We posted a link in our resource section as well. And please join us for other Modern Practice Podcasts. Subscribe today, like us, or send us your comments. I'm Dr. Tom Villanueva. Thanks so much for listening.